Welcome to the Salty Talks podcast, a podcast all about sustainable aquaculture in Maine. I'm Corinne Newfie, the communications specialist with the Aquaculture Research Institute, and today I have Tim Harder here with me over Zoom to give an overview of fish feed. So I'm going to turn it over to him to tell us more about himself. My name is Tim Harder. I, uh, I've been with Scredding for um, three and a half, almost four years now. My previous experience in aquaculture, I owned a, a seaweed farm down in uh, in Saco Bay right after I left uh, University of New England. I went to graduate school there for marine science, explored aquaculture a little bit through seaweed, um, but didn't have any experience with finfish until I, until I got to Scredding. I was uh, in the commercial sector in like the retail world um, and really wasn't, uh, didn't, didn't find my passion there. So when I, I left uh, some previous companies, I worked for a medical device company. I worked for a uh, uh, a retail grocer. Um, I determined that I was going to be in something that was uh, that I was passionate about, and that was aquaculture. And uh, come to find out that Bio Oregon and Scredding have a have a warehouse that's about 15, 20 minutes away from from where I live. So it was very very serendipitous, I suppose you you would say. And uh, walked in and um, kind of been running with it ever since. And uh, I think that feed is a really interesting place to be because um, it really drives so many things in aquaculture, but um, it's not at the forefront at all of a lot of conversations. So I find that we have a dramatic impact over over the aquaculture sector, but we are kind of in the background and I feel like there's a lot of important work to do there. So is the kelp farm how you got interested in aquaculture in the first place? I think it, it all kind of happened together. I, um, I actually, my degree was in, um, uh, like I said, marine science. I actually studied sediment movement um, in the Saco River, uh, which has nothing to really do with it. Um, and towards the end of my graduate program, I attended a, a lecture by Dr. Uh, Charles Yarish, who's down in Connecticut, and he uh, has done a ton of work um, with kelp aquaculture. And I just thought it was so cool. Um, and we're right here by the ocean. So I decided to give it a shot. And what it what it sort of exposed me to is the way that we look at our food here in, in America, I think is really kind of interesting where it comes from, what it's doing for us, what impact it has on the environment. Um, these are all things that aquaculture touches on. And even to, you know, the fact that we import so much of our seafood, you know, it's, it's a really healthy, sustainable protein and we're importing it from other countries and making it very difficult to do it here in our own country. Country, uh, I think there's some real opportunities, you know, and, and some of it is even like a homeland security concern. You know, there's work being done in North Carolina that's done with a grant from DHS, right? Like it's a, a sense of national security to be able to produce your own food. And this is something that a lot of countries um, are sort of moving to. So when you start talking about food, specifically seafood, I think you start touching on a lot of social and environmental factors that uh, that I just think are really cool. And some of that just, it all kind of developed together, um, right? Being out there on a boat and uh, being able to farm your own food and understanding what you're contributing in terms of like the nutrient cycle and um, bringing something local to people. All those concepts just, just kind of were reinforced as you're out there. So that actually sounds pretty similar to why I originally got interested in aquaculture. So I know that scredding is quite large. Um, can you quickly give a brief overview of Scredding and then more specifically where you're located at down in Saco? Scredding is um, is a it's an international company. They have over uh, 1,500 employees. Uh, we have production facilities in uh, 15 countries, um, sales in more than 40 countries. Um, 
And right now this data might be a little outdated, but we have production of over 1.3 million tons of feed worldwide. Um, and we feed up to 60 different species across the world. So Scredding is the largest aqua feed company in the world. Um, we also have a, a research facility, the Aquaculture Innovation Bubble up in uh, Stavanger, Norway, um, where our headquarters is. Um, and they employ a number of, of PhDs and, and research techs and specialists in, in feed nutrition. So they're constantly looking at um, new feed formulations and new solutions to animal nutrition challenges, uh, aqua feed challenges. The site in Westbrook, we actually uh, have a brand, Bio Oregon. We're all, all, all part of the same company. Bio Oregon is targeted to um, enhancement hatcheries, so um, our enhancement uh uh, aquaculture. The state of Maine, for instance, produces trout for what they call put and take. Um, they put trout out in uh, lakes, rivers, streams, ponds, so that folks can have fishing opportunities. Um, we enhance the natural trout population, um, and those fish are fed with our Bio Oregon brand. Um, and we support a number of uh, state enhancement hatcheries across the country, both on the East Coast uh, and the West Coast. So our production facility in uh, St. Andrews, New Brunswick, provides the majority of the feed down to the Westbrook warehouse. And then we then distribute um, all along the East Coast of the U.S. Have you ever been to the research facility in Norway? Um, I have not. I am uh, scheduled to go this September. Yeah, yeah, it'll be my my first time traveling there, so uh, we're gonna meet some of the team, um, and hopefully, hopefully, learn a bunch more about uh, about what it is they do over there. Uh, but no, it'll be my first time um, traveling out of the country for scredding, so I'm pretty excited about it. That's awesome, and Norway's such a great location. Scandinavia is a great location. Yeah, it's definitely uh, not not any place I was I was preparing to go, but here here we are. So this is exciting. And what exactly is your role at Scredding? So my role um, officially is key account manager for enhancement hatcheries uh, in the east for Scredding um, Scredding East. I try to help um, help our customers make correct decisions in. Um, what types of feed they're getting. Um, sometimes they have different program goals or um, price constraints or, or things like that. Um, we also distribute a number of what we call our life start diets. Um, these are specialized diets for uh, juvenile fish that covers both cold water and warm water species. So we generally help people um, make sure they're making the correct diet decisions. And then, you know, logistics is a big part of it too, you know, making sure that they can get the feed on time and forecasting correctly and, and all of those types of things. So today I want to talk about why the work going into fish feeds is important as we aim to make things more sustainable by experimenting with different ingredients and stepping away from fish and fish oil. Yeah, so the there's pressure on um, all, all different types of feed to what we call expand our ingredient basket, right? That's that's sort of the terminology that we use. And the reason is that, you know, traditional uh, marine raw ingredients that were used, as you mentioned, back in what, what you might call the early days of aquaculture, especially here in Maine in the U.S., aqua feeds were, were the vast majority were marine ingredients, fish meal and fish oil. They, they could have been, a pellet could have been as much as 80% or more fish meal and fish oil, which the fish love, obviously, but it's not, it's not sustainable when, when you look at using raw ingredients in that way, right? So there's a lot of competition for those raw ingredients. You know, the pet food industry um, is a big competitor uh, when it comes to those type of, of raw, uh, raw materials. Um, there's some 
uh, competition for even human consumption. You think about things like fish oil and supplements and so on and so forth. So um, competition is increasing for what is a finite stock, right? And the reason is that those are great raw, ma raw materials, right? If you're trying to formulate a feed for fish, things like amino acid content and uh, protein and digestible components are, are really good in marine raw materials, right? So um, they're great. They're great for use in a, in a pellet, but um, competition for a finite material, you know, drives prices up and stresses out supply chains um, and also causes us to look at, um, you know, our suppliers to make sure that they're doing things in a responsible way, right? And so as part of the aquaculture industry, our customers, the producers, um, are trying to produce food that that they're talking about um, sustainability and um, responsible protein production to consumers, right? And so we need to support that and make sure that that we're sourcing materials and indeed giving them the license to grow in that responsible way. So you know, nowadays um, we can replace some, mostly um, we can replace some of those marine raw materials and, and and some feeds can get really complicated, right? Like they can have upwards of 20, 25 different ingredients in there. Because um, you're trying to meet the nutritional needs of the fish, like amino acids and proteins and whatnot. Right, exactly. Um, there are a number of different things that an ingredient can do. Some of them can even be structural, right? Can help hold the pellet together. Um, some of them can even have um, you know, like a probiotic effect in the gut of the animal. Some of them um, can help the animal deal with cold temperatures and help them deal with really high temperatures, right? So there's also the, there's always the nutritional digestible um, portion of the pellet, but there's also some other things that raw materials can do that really make a feed pellet much more than, than just a little brown pellet of food, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of research and technology that goes into those things. You mentioned sustainability a few times, and I think it's important to note this um, in the case of wildfish, because nowadays a lot more people are starting to really pay attention to the environmental impact of their food, and this can help us reduce the need to rely on wildfish stocks for feed formulation. Yeah, a lot of those um, fisheries that, that we utilize are what they call reduction fisheries, so they actually reduce um, the, the amount of their fishery that goes to human consumption so that can be processed into fish meal for, for other uses. They call those reduction fisheries. There's also um, fish meal that's produced from trimmings, right? So there's some fish that get processed and what there's um, significant amounts of material that's left over that can be utilized, right? And that can get converted into fish meal too, which, you know, that supports a circular economy. That's obviously a desirable product as well, because it has, you're, you're reducing waste overall. When it comes to reduction fisheries, Scredding is very aware um, of where we source our material from. Our St. Andrews facility uses only MSC Marine Stewardship Council certified um, fisheries to get their, their fish meal from. Um, and so there's a real awareness of, um, you know, things like illegal and underreported um, fishing. Like, you know, we stay away from fisheries um, that are not certified um, and that um, don't do things, you know, sort of the right way, right? So we we want to make sure that that we're not contributing or we're not a customer to somebody who's who's uh, fishing in an irresponsible way or an unsustainable way or um, using um, poor labor practices, you know, and you know, so all those things kind of go into it um, when you're talking about raw marine raw ingredients. 
So if the feeds have more ingredients, are they more expensive to manufacture? In a lot of cases, it makes feed um, less expensive. And in a lot of ways, it gives us flexibility, right? So as you as your knowledge base expands into the role or, or how different raw materials can be used for a feed, um, you have flexibility to react to the market, right? So if some raw ingredient um, that you're using becomes really scarce, um, or for instance, another country invades another country and uh, raw materials also all of a sudden become very, very expensive. You have the ability to react and substitute accordingly. We, we use uh, a concept called best cost formulation, right? So our formulation can be uh, modified to market conditions without sacrificing the nutritional content of the pellet, right? So it gives us a lot of flexibility in our supply chain, which in some cases makes the feed actually less expensive, but overall makes the feed price very consistent year over year. If you're using a pellet, and again, just to stick with our example, that's 80% fish meal and fish oil, um, and the price of fish oil doubles like it has in the last 18 months or two years, now all of a sudden your pellet price just went through the roof, and there's really not much that you can do about it. Um, but if you know that you can substitute other things in there, then um, you can keep that price a bit more stable for your customers, which is, you know, obviously a huge benefit. So what are some examples of alternatives that are going into these feeds? Like, is it algae, soy, yeast, insects? Yeah, yeah there's uh, there's quite a bit of, uh, I, I don't know if I could list all of them, but um, soy is, is definitely something that's used. Um, uh, Poultry byproduct is is a really good raw material that's used. Poultry meal, which again contributes to that circular economy from from the poultry um, industry, which as you can imagine is quite large. Um, it's a it's a great raw material for us to use. Um, algae oil is something that's definitely out there. Um, people are starting to talk quite a bit about insect meal. Um, insect meal is something that. Uh, it's a, it's a good raw material that we're starting to work with. People are starting to ask questions about things like that. Um, then there's a number of uh, vegetable-based products that when used appropriately can, can really help lead to a high quality pellet as well. So the fish need to be attuned to the food. We want them to eat it, obviously. Do you notice any change with the fish as to how they react with substituted ingredients versus what they'd be eating in the wild? Yeah. So, you know, one thing that, that we have to consider when we're doing, uh, when we're looking at a new raw material is nutrient digestibility, right? So um, if you can have a raw material um, that on paper has, you know, huge amounts of proteins and all the, all of these wonderful things about it. Um, but if it's not digestible in the gut of the species that you're trying to feed, then, then it doesn't really work. Right. And so that's part of the research that goes into um, a new raw material and you know it, it does need to be palatable right like so like you said the, the fish need to want to eat it and so you know through a lot of testing there, there are parts of the pellet that are when we add a raw material to a pellet uh, palatability of the animal uh, is definitely taken in consideration right so um, the best raw material in the world um, is not really very good or of, of much use to us if the fish will reject it, right? So um, that's part of our research when we uh, look at new raw materials um, and also, you know, whether or not it's digestible within the gut of the animal. Um, so once the animal accepts it, it's gotta be able to digest it and do so in an efficient and healthy way. So um, there are some raw materials that um, you can include in a diet. They do have a benefit for the animal, but if you include them at too high a rate, 
there can then be a negative effect, right? So sometimes you have to put limits on how much of a certain raw material you can put in there, right? And and I, you know, I think this concept is really relatable to people who, you know, when you look at your own diet, right? There's some things that it's nice to include, but if you just only ate, you know, uh, pick your example, right? Like if you only ate soy, you know, every day of the week, right? Your body would not really be happy, but a little bit of soy adds some things to to your diet that are good and healthy and, and can be part of a, a, a great diet. But too much of too much of any one thing is probably not a good thing either, right? So is this what some of the research projects going on in Norway are looking at? Like fish behavior and how well they fare with different ingredients in their feed? Uh, yeah, so they are looking at um, the profile of, of raw materials and trying to see what it adds to the nutrition of the animal. They're looking at palatability. You know, I think I mentioned this before, but there's also what we would call uh, value added functions, right, of some uh, raw materials. Some can provide um, you know, value beyond just nutrition. So uh, there are physical effects, right? They, some raw materials can help pellet stability. They can help fecal stability and effluent control. So obviously after the animal eats it, there are raw materials that can be added so that uh, the waste of the animal is more stable and doesn't affect your overall water quality, right? And that's obviously a huge um, implication when you start thinking about like recirculating aquaculture systems, right? Labrasse facilities, um, having a more stable fecal pellet and less nutrient leaching, um, having something that's easier to remove. These are these are um, huge considerations and, and something that really sets spreading apart um, in that in that particular uh, segment of the industry. Um, you know, also there are there are probiotic effects. Some can actually stimulate uh, um, an immune response in the animal, uh, which is great. Helps some animals become more robust um, in times of uh, higher temperature and lower temperature. You can actually decrease mortality uh, in some of these instances. You can make them more robust to uh, potential uh, disease states, right? Um, when the animal's challenged with the, with the pathogen on the farm, um, a, an animal with a more robust gut biome um, can actually be a little bit more, uh, better able to handle those situations. And just sort of understanding what stress and changes in the environment the fish are, are under um, allows us to add, you know, different vitamins and minerals so that, you know, one, one really good example is that there are some diets that have increased level of zinc, right? Um, and, and some other minerals that, that really give them good skin health, right? And so at times when the fish is being handled, handled quite a bit, um, you think about times like during vaccination or uh, times when people are going to be working with the fish and they're going to be moved around and stressed. A little bit added, a little bit of added uh, protection for the skin can help reduce things like lesions and sores and, and make the animals better able to get through those sort of challenging periods. I like that you previously put this into a human perspective. It's easy to relate to, like if we all have an enriched, well-rounded diet with different foods and we take our probiotics and our vitamins, then we're also likely to not get sick with a virus or something like that. So do aquaculturists welcome these new feeds or is it sometimes met with hesitation? That's where the rubber meets the road, as it were. And this is um, a huge part um, of what I do every day. So. Um, there are some aquaculturists who they, they, you know, like anything else, they kind of do their own research and sometimes that's good and sometimes that's not good. They hear things like, well, if you add, um, if you add this ingredient, I heard um, that fish will do this. And, you know, if you add this, you know, so there, there's some folks who are definitely what I, I would consider traditionalists. They think that fish should be eating fish 
Um, and anything else you're putting in there is is a filler and it's this and it's that, you know. So I, I've heard some things like that, um, a bit of a, a more old school approach that a little less open to change. Um, and then there's other people who want to kind of try everything, right? Um, and I think what's important for a grower, um, they really need to understand how it is that they're going to market their product. Like, what is it that they want to talk about with their product? There are um, aquaculturists that talk about their fish being fed organic feed. Um, that's important to them. That's part of their messaging. There's people who want to advertise that they have a sustainable feed, right? Um, there's people who want to advertise um, that we're using one of our customers um, overseas actually um, designed a marketing campaign around the inclusion of insect meal with their fish. Right. And it actually was on the logo, had a, you know, a fish uh, had this cool um, sort of uh, artistic impression of a fish and uh, and an insect together. Right. Like and so they were talking about the diet in, a, in what you might consider an all natural sense. Right. This is, you know, fish eat insects. Right. And that's what our diet is mimicking. So. A big part of it is understanding what message you're trying to get to your consumer. If you want to reduce your impact on uh, the marine environment, um, there's actually diets that can be made um, that have no marine ingredients at, at all. But, you know, the question then remains, you know, how do you market that to the average consumer? Like, how does the consumer value that? Um, and what is it that they need to see um, in terms of packaging or terminology or whatever it may be in order to give you the value for doing that additional work, right? Because it is additional work to try out new diets and to trial them um, and to understand how it's affecting your fish growth um, and then to understand what the impact on your filet quality is and flavor and, and all of those different types of considerations. So sort of blazing those new trails with consumers, uh, or, or I should say with growers, often leads back to what is it they're trying to communicate to the consumer. And so there is a bit of extra work in there. We we stand by the our research group. So we're usually fairly confident, um, you know, if we're offering you a new raw material, it's been well vetted already. But again, it, it kind of it becomes a decision for the grower um, to understand exactly what it is the goal um, of their company is. So do you know how consumers reacted to this packaging you were talking about with the fly and the fish on it? Um, I don't know. I believe it was in 2019 at a, a retail grocery chain in France, um, and they did a big product launch with it. I don't know exactly what the, the performance was in the market, um, but that's always a really interesting thing to me because, you know, seafood in general, and I actually heard, I heard a chef, Barton Seaver, who's, uh, he's wonderful, and he spoke at a lot of events. I actually heard him say this once. Uh, and he said, it's not that aquaculture has sort of a, we, we look at seafood differently than we look at other foods, right? Like you need a social license in order to sell your seafood. And aquaculture is really an extension of that, right? So, you know, people need to see things on their seafood packaging that they probably don't need to see with other foods, right? Like nobody asks, you know, where you sourced your bacon from, right? Like nobody asks, you know, where, where the bacon came from. Like we just, we love bacon. So we eat bacon, right? Um, but then if you see your, if you see salmon um, or shrimp uh, at the seafood counter, people want to know, well, was this responsibly raised? You know, where was this sourced out of? You know, and you can see this a lot on seafood packaging. They have to tell you where it was caught, where it was processed. And a lot of people need to see a third party certification, for instance. Um, they have to see that on the packaging. And so the messaging with seafood is much, much different than it is, you know, with other types of, with other types of food. And, and, um, 
I think what's really helping a lot with aquaculture now um, is people are able to see um, the word local um, as aquaculture continues to grow. Uh, and especially in America, it's we're certainly not as growing as fast as, as the rest of, of the world. But what you're starting to see is that when folks tell you that this, this animal was raised um, or produced in an area that's close to them, it's local, they, um, I think, I think consumers associate that with being fresh. Um, and I think they associate that with, you know, with a certain level of trust, right? This wasn't imported from a country that you don't know anything about. This was produced locally by people that, um, that you probably would recognize. So um, yeah, there's, there's quite a bit that goes into that packaging piece. You know, again, how much do you want to communicate about what you fed your animal and how do you do that? Um, I think we're still figuring that out, right? I mean, you know, talking about if you put something on a package that said this animal was fed a fish feed that had no marine raw materials, I don't know what the average consumer would do with that. You know, I don't I don't know how they would interpret that. Right. So it becomes a challenge. <laughs> you just summed up a lot of my grad school experience. When you walk into a store and something says organic or cage free, something like that, people tend to gravitate towards it. Or like on a tuna can when it says dolphin safe, that's the one that people want. But talking about feed, it's hard to not be really wordy when you show what a fish was fed. People just want to go into the grocery store, get their food and leave. They don't want to have to sit there and mull over all of this information. It's uh, it's interesting to think about how this can be succinctly summed up uh, on some sort of label, or would it be a deterrent for people to read that their food wasn't fed marine ingredients? Now this is just like a wandering tangent, but... Right, yeah, and, and you know, the labels that are out there, the third parties that are out there, the Aquaculture Stewardship Council and the um, the Global um, Aquaculture Alliance, you know, with their best aquaculture program, the BAP certification, there's a tremendous amount of work that goes into those. But again, uh, the consumer uh, is still skeptical, right? There's something about seafood that makes us all um, very skeptical about, you know, what it is that we're buying. And so, you know, I, I don't think folks have really figured that out um, in terms of what works best when they say things like all natural and sustainable. Those terms are still a bit amorphous, I think, in the marketplace. And so, um, you know, again, it, it does drive feed decisions that are really impactful, right? If, you know, uh, changing out a raw, raw material or adding in this or adding in that uh, can change the price point of your feed dramatically. We have um, many conversations um, with growers who say things like, well, we want to sell to to Whole Foods, for instance. And Whole Foods does, does quite a bit of work um, around how they market their seafood and how they how they message, you know, really all of their proteins. But in order to comply with the standards that Whole Foods has, that has a huge impact on the price point of your feed. And so, you know, again, the grower then has to decide, is the increase in price for the feed that I'm going to pay going to be worth um, what it is Whole Foods is getting me? Like, is that what's important to us, to our company? So those sometimes those things come down to dollars and cents. Sometimes they come down to, you know, a social responsibility thing. You know, like, what is the company? What's most important to them? Um, in the marketplace. But, you know, I, I, I always kind of think that for seafood, the demand really is so great. Like we're not, we're not really even close domestically to supplying the demand um, for, for the United States of America. Sometimes I feel like our, our customers try to differentiate themselves maybe too much, right? Like being local, being a domestic um, supplier um, is preferable sometimes. And I think that, you know, sometimes we put 
a bit too finer point on that uh, on that messaging. But, uh, you know, again, that's like sort of a personal decision for each company that we work with. So clearly the technology is there to develop these feeds. But what is the scalability here of alternative ingredients and in fish feeds? Because it kind of seems to me like this, um, I don't know, like chicken egg type situation. Yeah, no, that's no, no, that's a great point. Um, and something that, that comes up quite a bit with raw materials is that um, people hear about a raw material and they think it's great. And and sometimes it is great. Right. Um, but the thing that you have to remember is that that raw material, um, if we're going to use it, needs to be available all year long. Right. So your seasonal crops, that becomes a huge challenge. You know, one that I've heard a number of times people say, well, seaweed is fantastic and we're able to harvest seaweed. Let's use seaweed. And so, um, you know, just as an exercise, you say, okay, well, how much seaweed can you produce? Can you produce it all year long? And, and this becomes really important too, is the nutrient composition of your seaweed going to be the same? So in other words, if you have a seasonal crop or a seasonal product, where and when it's grown is going to greatly impact the nutrient composition, right? You know, one really cool example I, I heard, this is uh, from my previous supply chain days, you know, Budweiser brews beer, right? And they use uh, beechwood aging and they use rice and they use water and they use hops. These are all seasonal ingredients that can vary from season to season and from place to place, depending on where you source them from. But Budweiser tastes the same every time you drink it or so I'm told, right? So they do an unbelievable job of working with those seasonal ingredients. When it comes to actual nutrient composition within a feed, if your feed or if your raw material varies, that's very undesirable for us. We need to be able to count on uh, when we're formulating the feed, we need to be able to count on, you know, your your levels of protein, the, you know, the levels of fat. We need to, we need a highly consistent product that is available all year long and available in quantities that we're going to use it. You know, there are there are customers that order in the thousands of tons per year, right? So if you're adding an ingredient and we're going to include it at, you know, just, just for, you know, number's sake, you know, a 10% inclusion rate, you know, you're in the hundreds of tons per year and we need to be able to count on that, right? You know, again, in using our example about insect meal, there are insect producers that we're beginning to work with, but they haven't really scaled just yet because they're trying to figure out what the market is and we're trying to figure out exactly what our demand is going to be. So as they scale up, obviously the other benefit to that is that they're going to get more efficient and the price point of their material is going to come down. So as you're producing things in really small batches, what you might consider like R&D batches, it's going to be really expensive on a cost per pound basis, right? As they start scaling up and getting bigger and bigger, that cost comes down and now it becomes easier for us to use. But as you mentioned, it's sort of a chicken in the egg scenario. We can say, hey, we think insect meal is great. Let's scale up and buy all this high high quantities of insect meal. And then we get to the market and we realize that, you know, maybe the customer rejects it or maybe the customer doesn't understand it. Or maybe our customers, the growers are skeptical of it and don't want it in their feeds, right? So those are all things that need to get figured out when you talk about a raw material. People are very sensitive to change um, in the industry. As you mentioned, they're growing fish and they've been using a certain feed for a long time um, and they understand the results. They, they get those consistent results that they can plan on and forecast to, which are really, really important. And now you're going to institute a change, right? You know, it, it takes a customer that's willing to, you know, to work with you a little bit on that and say, well, let's see what the effects are. You know, obviously we're going to, we're not going to give them a feed that's going to negatively infect their, uh, affect their production, right? 
Um, but they need to, there's a certain level of trust there and they need to be able to move forward with us in a partnership. So all of those things come into effect when, when you start using a new raw material. Um, the price point to start off with is generally going to be high. Um, and then as we work with it more and more and more, the price point is going to come down a little bit. And we're starting to see that with some of these new raw materials uh, in the marketplace now. One more question about these hurdles. Um, are there regulatory hurdles like how the FDA certifies things or health standards that you might have to worry about for things to be marketable? Uh, yep, there is um, approval status that has to be, you know, any ingredient that we use um, to grow food for human consumption has to be approved for use by the country uh, in which it's being used. And so as Scredding is an international company, this can sometimes get really, this can get really tricky, right? So we produce in uh, Canada and we sell here in the U.S. and the rules are different for both places. The rules on how you label things are different. The rules on what you can put in feed in Canada are different than what they are here in the U.S. Uh, we also import feeds um, from our scredding facilities in France and Spain, um, and they have different rules and regulations. Um, and so we just got uh, our inspection, sort of our routine inspection on some of our feeds uh, from the FDA. We received in a shipment from France um, and they went through uh, and they're testing to make sure everything that's on that label is indeed what's in the feed, right? So in addition to all of that R&D work that goes into a new raw material, you then have to have to do the work uh, on the regulatory side to make sure that folks who use this are going to then be able to sell their fish, right? The approval status um, is sort of a layered thing. There are ingredients that you can use that you know aren't even allowed in certain countries and whatnot. So that that can certainly add a layer of complexity when you, when you're talking about expanding your raw material basket. That's another example of something that I think would be so great for consumers to know that it's been through so many vetting processes. You know, and I think that there's uh, you know there's a good level of responsibility, especially here in North America, you know, including Canada as well. Um, things like animal welfare um, are taken into account. You know, some of these are part of third third party certification. You know, even when you get down to, I was reading an article the other day, you know, even they even get down to how the animal is slaughtered and they want that done. People want that done in a humane way. You know, there's sort of old practices that, that are getting phased out. You know, then there's there's people who are saying, well, yes, but we have smaller producers and we think this is a more humane way to slaughter the animal. And People are actually working to make sure the smaller producers can still afford to be able to do that, right? Like, so the level of scrutiny with how your food is fed, uh, treated, and handled right up until the moment that it's slaughtered really is, um, it's quite remarkable, right? And, and to your point, I, I would say anything with a label on it, but but again, anything that's produced locally here in North America, you you can be reasonably assured that uh, that animal is is being treated in a humane way and and there's not a negative impact or i should say there's a manageable impact on the environment right like people take you know obviously you, you're you're going to have some effect but you know people are looking at that people are looking at that in a very serious way and the regulatory bodies and agencies are are keeping close watch right yeah, and I think that something important to know is that with any food production system, there's going to be some sort of environmental impact, and understanding these impacts is definitely something to think about when considering what protein you're going to buy when you're shopping at the grocery store. Yeah, and, and something aquaculture, you know, routinely stands by is the fact that when you compare um, growing fish to any other type of protein production, whether it be, you know, especially when you think about our terrestrial 
uh, protein production. Um, in terms of carbon emission, in terms of feed conversion rate, all of those type of things, aquaculture, you know, we sort of come out on top with those things. And and that's a big part of why aquaculture is part of, you know, like what we call the blue revolution, right? Like producing our food more sustainably so that we have less of an impact on the environment, right? Um, so you can grow, um, Moe actually released something. They were talking about um, how much marine ingredients they use or how much fish they use to produce one kilo of salmon, right? And it's actually less than one kilo of fish in gets you uh, one kilogram of fish out. I think the number that they, uh, that was reported is like 0.65, which is amazing, right? So you're using basically half a fish with some other ingredients to create, you know, one whole fish, right? So you're producing protein in, in a very sustainable way as compared to our terrestrial forms um, of protein production. And you're doing so with less carbon impact. Um, and again, you're doing so in, a, in, in an industry that is more closely monitored than probably any of the other ones. I think this is a good wrapping up point, just looking at the time, but I do want to ask if there's just any last minute things that you wanted to say. I think that uh, the longer I'm with aquaculture, it sort of reinforces a lot of the reasons that I got into uh, the industry in general. Um, there's a lot of folks that I work with at Scredding and, and even our, you know, I, I won't name them, right, but our competitors, you know, there is a consciousness among feed suppliers and producers to be doing things, you know, I'll do air quotes, right, like the right way and to make sure that we're not just, you know, to, to put the big scary image up there, right? Like we're not just taking all the fish from the sea uh, to grow salmon for for folks, you know, we're, we're constantly looking for new solutions that are more environmentally friendly, more environmentally friendly, that reduce pressure on supply chains that are more locally produced. Um, and allow us to create a product that's that's overall better for food consumption for for human beings, right? And I think that's the ultimate goal. And people are really passionate about that idea all through the aquaculture community, but especially where I work too, which is which is pretty great. So, all right, well, it's probably the most exciting topic that you'll cover. So that's that's really good. Thanks, Tim, for taking time to educate us about fish feed.